Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Israel is now going through a real crisis having to do with Israel's Supreme Court. Uh, Let us compare it to America's Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in the United States has power. Among other groundbreaking rulings, it has compelled racial integration of public schools, determined issues that decided the presidential election of 2000, and most recently, concluded that there exists no constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy and therefore that each state could decide the issue for itself. That is something that has caused a lot of conflict now in the United States. The fact that the Supreme Court gave the right to the states about pregnancy. On the other hand, the Supreme Court in the United States has very limited jurisdiction and it imposes strict requirements who may have standing to sue. Only takes a case if four of the nine justices agree and must always act within the constraints of the Constitution. Now, here in Israel, the situation is quite different, and now it involves a battle. The... um, the American Constitution is a result of compromise and settled. On the judicial front, the Supreme Court was given extraordinary power to overturn an act of Congress, but only if the act violated the Constitution. And never, and this is the point, they never could overturn an act because the law in question violated the justice's personal sensibilities. Also, they have independence because they're appointed by the president, but they had to be approved and confirmed by the Senate, and judges could be impeached by Congress. That's how the system works in the United States. There are balances. Now, in Israel... It's time for Israel to do the same. Those who believe that the Israeli Supreme Court has too much power are not outside the mainstream of judicial thought. Israeli Supreme Court judges are selected by a committee, not by the Knesset. The majority of the committee are not politically accountable, and the Supreme Court itself even has veto power over new judicial appointments. And because Israel lacks a constitution, they they do have some basic rules which can be repealed, and they're not really like a constitution. Judges should not be able to decide matters based on personal views and philosophies. Those who claim now that limiting the power of the Israeli Supreme Court is an attack on democracy are really not correct. They're wrong. It is the Knesset, not the court, that reflects the democratic will of the Israeli people. 
Indeed, it is the court that puts a break on the exercise of that will. It can be argued that there needs to be some break on popular will, that nations should hold some values sufficiently sacrosanct that even the legislature cannot change them, at least not by a simple majority. That is not the practice, however, in numerous parliamentary democracies, like the United Kingdom, for example, whose government structure most influences Israel's founders. When the legislature reigns supreme and the Supreme Court only may interpret but not overturn a law of the parliament, that's how it works in Great Britain. In contrast, the America, America permits the Supreme Court to engage in judicial review and to overturn acts of Congress, but only within the limits set forth in the U.S. Constitution. Without a constitution, and Israel has no constitution, without a constitution, it's awfully difficult to devise a methodology for the Israeli Supreme Court to engage in the type of judicial reviews that they have in the United States. By the way, before 1992, the Israeli Supreme Court did not consider itself to have the power to overrule acts of the Knesset, which, by the way, follows the British rule. In the United Kingdom, the legislature reigns supreme, as I said, and the Supreme Court may only interpret, but not overturn a law of the parliament. Here, the uh, the, the now the, the court has accepted upon himself the ability to overturn law, not just to interpret it. The Israeli Supreme Court has arrogated to itself all the powers of the United States Supreme Court with none of the corresponding limitations and restrictions. The Israeli Supreme Court also has far exceeded the powers that most parliamentary democracies afford the courts. It's a serious issue, and those who change in good faith should not be assaulted by other leaders who should know better. Right now, there is a huge struggle. As I'm uh, recording this program on Saturday night, and there are huge demonstrations in Tel Aviv and in uh, Jerusalem, not far from my house, by people who do not want to change the laws regarding the supreme right. The truth of the matter is, there's no right or wrong way for Israel to tackle this issue. The overturning an act of Knesset means if the court overturns an act of the Knesset, essentially what that means is they're negating the will of the majority. It ought to be an extremely rigorous process that's rarely implemented. Turning over an act of Knesset should not be something that could be done easily. Reasonable people can differ still come to a fair conclusion on the necessary legislative threshold to protect certain laws and the additional thresholds overturn them. 
along with a process for judicial appointments that is more responsive to the public will. Right now, Israeli Supreme Court justices are chosen by a committee in which three, it's a committee of nine, I believe, in which three are Supreme Court justices. In other words, the, the sitting Supreme Court justices have a large say in who else will get onto the Supreme Court. The, uh, the, by the, the, there should be done on a basis of good faith efforts to achieve a national consensus. Unfortunately, the pursuit of these efforts is undermined by all the people in the public square who are who are uh, uh, um, bonding together and having demonstrations that they don't want to see changes made in the way that the Supreme Court operates in Israel. The current path is dangerous and it's really untenable. The, there's intellectual dishonesty permeating many of the arguments and it's quite harmful and the rhetoric and the, the, the crowds going into the streets is causing internal disunity and external ba embarrassment. The one thing that Israel cannot afford is internal disunity. The, there is a wise paradigm. Be careful what you wish for because you might get it. Judicial reforms achieved without a meaningful consensus could easily be reversed by the next government, or worse still, maintained by the next government and deployed to take his in the wrong direction. The, the political winds change. This government could push through changes on how the courts or judges are chosen but when this, if and when this government falls, the next government may do away with the changes that this government made, and this can happen again when the next government falls or is replaced. In other words, you cannot have laws that are easily changed, particularly regarding the administration of justice. The A sensible and practical and predictable legal system is essential to good government and to justice, and to prosperity. Israel needs a balance, a real balance. There is no doubt, there is no doubt that a sensible, practical, and predictable legal system is essential to good government, to justice, and to prosperity. Israel deeply deserves such a system and needs to carefully balance but what they call anarchy versus tyranny issues, these are the kind of things that were fought over when the United States came into being between Hamilton and Jefferson three centuries ago. The the they uh, one of them um, wanted more power for the central government, the other wanted more power for the states. They ended up in compromising and make a constitution that has lasted for more than 200 years. Israel is a country less than 75 years old, and we haven't yet formed a system 
that is really proper. We're still in the process of forming it, and it can't be formed. It can't be formed by riots in the street. It has to be done slowly and carefully, with aforethought, and that's the problem we're having now. The government that just came in several weeks ago wants to make changes. Many of these changes are justified, but the idea of pushing them so quickly is problematic. And that is why, as I'm making this uh, recording, this program, less than a mile away, in front of the president of Israel's house, there is a demonstration against the changes that are being proposed. It's unfortunate. We'll have to see how it plays out. I want to get to another issue now for this section, the program, and uh, I want to say a few words about uh, the uh, anti-Semitism, because anti-Semitism, when it comes in in the society, generally means that the society is in decline. In other words, Jews are what's called the canary in the coal mine. Across cultures and continents where Jews have flourished, so have societies around them. Where Jews have faced persecution and expulsion, it's usually a sign that darker forces are taking hold that'll degrade, diminish, and destroy the broader society. In other words, the way Jews are treated is a sign of the health of a society. When there is anti-Semitism, it means the society itself in the trouble or in trouble. You, there, history has shown this. There was a time, the golden era of Jewish achievement in Spain, for example, and the, the, the Spanish kingdom with great success. Then they kicked out the uh, Jews in 1492 and, and they were and the country declined. The same is true of Germany. Jews were very active in the artistic, intellectual, and economic life in Germany in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. Along came Hitler with his uh, irrational hatred. It not only killed the Jews, it destroyed Germany and tens of millions of lives across Europe as well. So the way Jews are treated is, is a sign to have healthy society. These are the history lessons. Now, there's rising anti-Semitism today. The, uh, the, uh, a specific threat uh, to the Jews could mean a danger to America. The most concerning is the fact that the core values that a country has is reflected in how it treats the Jews. The four main drivers of anti-Semitism are the radical right, the radical left, among radical Muslims, and among black supremacists in the United States. All, All these groups also happen to hate America. These groups and their supporters all seek to undermine the core values of free speech, democracy, individual rights, equality, and religious pluralism. In other words, as I said a moment ago, the way Jews are treated says something about the whole society. And uh, the, uh, the people who are really opposed to America 
are those who are the most anti-Semitic. All Jews, Jews have championed the values that, that America stands for. The Jews are a useful target in the struggle of changing America beyond recognition in line with all kinds of extreme ideologies. You, I watch the news from the United States. There are all kinds of groups there who are both anti-Semitic, and if you look at their behavior, they're also anti-American. White Jew hatred, for example, for black supremacists is a recent American phenomenon. The radical right, the radical left, the radical Muslims have hated Jews for thousands of years. Each one of them has promoted its own version of a classical anti-Semitism. The, uh, it's interesting that following the Holocaust, anti-Semitism was politically incorrect for 30 or 40 years. But a new kind of anti-Semitism started originating from campus leftism in the 1960s, just after Israel's victory in the Six-Day War in 1967. uh, And there's a new military alliance formed with America, which transformed the Jewish state into a Western imperialist and colonialist overdog, according to these people. They hate the United States, these leftist groups and these far-right groups, and they express their hatred in anti-Semitism, too. Since the 1970s, the radical left movement started forming alliances with radical Muslim groups because both positioned themselves as fighting against Western values and imperialism. The... Despite the fact they're naturally completely misaligned in their belief systems and ideologies, the strategic partnership known as the Red Green or Islamo Leftist Alliance is based on anti Western, anti American, anti Zionist principles. And now we have uh, these things appearing in the institution of higher uh, education in America. They have something now called critical race theory, which is rooted in the Marxism, and organizations aligned with this work together. They're opposed to due process, freedom of speech, free market capitalism. Their policies are centered in racialized and violent world immersed in conspiracy theories. The... uh, so the, there is a, now an alliance in the United States between the Islamic, the leftist alliance, and they promote radical ideologies in America, including you know, critical race theory and a thing called the theory of intersectionality, which argues that marginalized and oppressed groups must all come together to fight against their oppressors. And their oppressors include the United States, Israel and the Jews. So there's a new kind of anti-Semitism, and that's what we're facing now. There's something called the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, which is the leftist and the radical action against Israel, but is also against American society. Behind the BDS, there's a burning hatred of America, It's exceptional liberal, democratic, and capitalistic character and the United States' worldwide influence. 
So the far left and the radical Muslims are both anti-American and they're anti-Jewish. They're, they're related to each other in that way. And all this is new. This kind of thing didn't exist years ago when I was a kid in America. You have new anti-Americanism, which goes hand in hand with anti-Semitism. I, I, this, this is something that's something new and something that has to be studied, understood, and challenged. I'll speak more about this at another time. I just wanted to touch, touch upon it now. People should be aware of it. I'll be back after the break. One minute of Torah. The plagues are devastating Egypt. Freedom for the Jews is coming any day now. And as hard as it may be to believe, not all the Jews want to leave Egypt. All right, says God, if you want to stay, you can stay. In order that the Egyptians not witness this embarrassing phenomenon, God had those Jews perish and be buried under the cover of the plague of darkness in our Torah portion of Bo. Nowadays, we are in exile once again. Our good deeds, kind words, and positive thoughts help redeem us from exile and hasten the redemption, which will be the final and everlasting one. In contrast to the Egyptian exodus, any Jew nowadays who is so comfortable and does not want to leave exile will still leave. No Jew will be left behind this time. Ever since we received the Torah, the Jews have entered into a different bond with God, a bond that can never be broken, regardless of what our conscious mind, speech, and actions declare. Knowing that ultimately we will all be redeemed encourages us to prepare ourselves for the moment, and even more so, to think, speak, and act in a way that hastens its arrival. With your Eintarmen of Torah, this is Chava Zekovich. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and unfortunately, Israel is going through a governmental crisis that is truly an embarrassment for the state of Israel and for the Jewish people. Right now, the High Court of Justice has announced that a long-time chairman of the Shas party named Ayyadari cannot serve in the position of interior and health minister. He was appointed by Netanyahu, the prime minister, to be in charge of two uh, parts of the government, interior ministry and the health ministry. Now, the, the case was brought to the High Court of Justice to determine whether a man with uh, his record can be a minister in the government. It did not question whether he can be a member of Knesset. It questioned whether he can be a minister in the government. Ten justices in the Supreme Court agreed, and only one disagreed, and the High Court ruled that Prime Minister Netanyahu must remove Ayyadari from his government post. He can remain a member of Knesset. Truth of the matter is, this ruling was expected, but it turned out to be quite dramatic because it threw, it threw the coalition into a crisis. And for the last week and a half, and a half there were all kinds of demonstrations taking place both in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem against the decision 
to remove Derry from a ministerial position. Now, what happened was that Derry went to jail many years ago for corruption, and then a second case came up back in 2021 for tax offenses that were committed while in office, and he signed, he, Derry, signed a plea bargain in 2021, and this is the main cause of the court's decision. Because in the plea bargain to keep him out of jail, he said he would no longer be a government minister. And so the court now said that he has to keep his word and indeed no longer be a minister in the government. Most of the justices agreed to the plea bargain and uh, therefore he should not be a member of the government. In other words, the the justices accepted that by signing the plea bargain, Derry had committed himself to retire from public life. Derry's legal team argued that the deal did not include retiring from government work, which we had never intended to do. Now, as I said, this was not Derry's first offense. In 1999, he was given a three-year jail sentence after being convicted of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. It's interesting to note by the the opinion of the Supreme Court was 10 against 1, and it's important to note that the one judge who did not vote to remove him from his ministerial position did indeed vote that he is to be investigated for what he called moral turpitude. He should be investigated by a committee which would, if we, if he were found guilty, remove him to the position nevertheless. That is to say, he would be transferring responsibility of Derry's political fate back to the politicians. That's what it really means. As evidenced by the extensive explanations the justices provided, they wrote a very long legal decision. It's clear that the decision was made solely on legal considerations without any political consideration surrounding the new government's plans for a judicial overhaul. Keep in mind, this is happening at the same time that the uh, the government is planning to overhaul the relationship between the courts and the government. Right now, and I don't want to go into all the details, over the past 30 years, and Israel does not have a constitution, the judges in the Supreme Court in particular have gained a tremendous amount of power to overrule laws. If you take a place like the United States, where you have a legislature, you have an executive branch, and you have a court, they're supposed to be equal, and therefore there are various decisions that are made that uh, show the equality of these branches of government. Over the last 30 years, 
the Supreme Court has very slowly and almost not noticeably uh, uh, eroded the uh, strength of the other branches of the government outside the court and taken a, a lot of strength unto itself. And the government now is planning to take away some of that extra strength that the judicial uh, portion of the, uh, has. Now, so uh, those dismayed by the ruling now can't help but believe it's tied into the overarching battle taking place over the controversial jurisdiction reform that the government is planning. In other words, there are those who say that the decision in the Derry case by the judges, that the judges had in mind the fact that the government is trying to reduce their power, and that influenced their decision about Derry. I know it sounds a little bit complicated, but essentially there are those who say that the decision to kick Derry out of the government was based not simply on the facts, but on the fact that the court is trying to uh, signify that it has a lot of strength. So uh, the, they believe because the coalition hopes to strip the power of the high court, the court has stripped one of the leading faces in the coalition of the government ministries. In other words, there are those who feel that the decision taken by the court about Derry wasn't just based on the facts of the case, but rather they wanted to show their strength against the government. Now, Derry's reaction was extreme. He said something really strange. He said, they closed the door, so I'll enter through the window. If they close the, winner, the win window, I'll break in through the ceiling, which is not a very uh, political thing to say. Now, there are others who say that the decision against Derry was based on the fact that he is a Sfaradi, and that the ten justices who uh, ruled against Derry were Ashkenazi. Uh, to those of the listeners who might not be familiar, Ashkenazi essentially, in, in a broad sense, are Jews coming from Europe, and Sfaradim are Jews coming from the Arab land. And there are a lot of problems between these groups. So there are those who say that the reason that Derry was uh, told by the court that he cannot be a minister is because the, the the ten members of the court who said that were Ashkenazim. In other words, they brought up the race issue. So it's very unfortunate. So these reactions, uh, are they exemplify the contempt in which certain elements of society hold the justice system. Uh, the uh, there are those who say, well, they would not have voted against Derry if he was a minister in the government led by former Prime Minister Yair Lapid. In other words, there are people who claim that now that the government is led by Netanyahu and the Likud, so the uh, members of the court are trying to get some kind of revenge. The it turns out, I believe, 
that Netanyahu decided to remove Derry from the government because he simply had no choice after the judges ruled. As a matter of fact, the Attorney General made clear in a letter to the Prime Minister after the ruling in which the Attorney General wrote, according to the ruling that was given today, Minister, a member of Knesset Derry cannot continue serving as a minister in the Israeli government. Consequently, and according to your authority, you, the Prime Minister, you must act according to the ruling and remove Derry from his role in the government. Now, in a sense, this ruling demonstrates that the system of checks and balances worked and it should be a source of pride for all Israelis. It's a system in which the High Court constantly reviews the actions of the government and protects civil rights and minority rights. And that is what's called democracy. The, but there was an overwhelming consensus from the judges, 10 against 1, and these judges, their political views range widely, and there is probably can say that politics didn't play a role in their decision. Now, by doing what they considered right, the uh, High Court opened up a Pandora's box. The coalition is going to push its proposed judicial reforms harder than ever. And uh, there are those who see the High Court's ruling as an attempt to bring down the coalition. The uh, ruling will be exploited as a prime reason for judicial overhaul. The, uh, the legal system is alive and well and doing its job, but it's very complicated here in Israel because is the, the historic problem issue between Sephardim and Ashkenazim Jews who come from Europe and Jews who came from the Arab countries. And the, over the years, the uh, problems between these two diverse groups have become settled, and Israelis have become much more modified in their actions. And today, being an Israeli, people don't simply look at where, where your background is. You're an Israeli, and that's it. But this decision has brought the old struggle or the old gap between Ashkenazim and, and Sephardim to the forefront again. I know that it's a somewhat complicated issue, and uh, the newspapers and the TV and the radio are discussing this almost all day long now since the decision was made by the court that Derry cannot be a minister. So Israel now, in a sense, is uh, fighting a fight that should not occur after 75 years of independence. It, go, it brings up a lot of old wounds between the various sections of society, and it's brought people out into the street to demonstra demonstrate. And uh, I, I try as much as I can to bring the listeners up to speed. In other words, the decision 
that this particular person cannot be a member of the government is being picked up by certain people or certain groups saying that the decision was made because he's a Sephardi. They're bringing up these old racial issue and they're going to the streets and are having demonstrations. And this is the throwback to problems that Israel had right after its very founding 75 years ago. And it's, uh, uh, it's really, it's really a, a pity that this issue between Sephardim and Ashkenazim has again risen over the issue of this person, whether he can be a member of the government or not. So it's opening old wounds and it's very unfortunate for the state. It's a crisis. There's no way, of, no two ways about it. And hopefully it will be resolved. But I tried in a simplified manner to let the uh, listeners know what it's about. And I hope I've succeeded. Now, I want to change the subject slightly. We are truly in uncharted waters. When the High Court of Justice votes 10 to 1 on an issue and a sizable minority of the country's citizens decry it as political and invalid, then there's truly something broken with the system and with our society. The dramatic ruling by the High Court that Shah's leader, Arya Derry, cannot serve as a minister in the government, it seems pretty clear-cut. The, but the one-sided vote crossed all political boundaries. It was 10 to 1. And uh, some Shah supporters, supporters of Derry, went so far as to raise the racism card, citing that the Ashkenazic origin of the judges and the Sephardic origin of Derry was the, the cause of the ruling. And uh, it, it really is unfortunate. One of the supporters of Derry uh, at, a, at a rally to support Derry said that 10 white Ashkenazi judges, the same ones who killed our ancestors, will not remain silent. The nation will rise up. We're sick of you corrupt white people. That's what this Shas supporter said. And we don't need that. In Israel, a segment of the population has lost faith in the legal system despite the clarity of the decision based on purely legal considerations. The Derry decision will undoubtedly be used as ammunition by the judicial reformers who cry foul, while those who oppose the government's plans view the decision of the justice system means it's working in an exemplary fashion. It will be interesting to see if Derry supporters will take to the streets again to protest the decision. They, they did last week, and, and apparently they're planning this week also. This could bring about a problem in the national unity that the country has always strived for. This is oh, now you have everyone out in the street protesting someone. The, uh, the the question is, will they keep the peace 
Will they have orderly demonstrations? And will the national security minister uh, do what will he do if they if the people don't keep the peace and block roads or don't follow police instructions? The question is, what is going to happen as a result of this decision? This is a time, really and truly, a time of crisis in the state of Israel. The old problem of the Sephardi versus Ashkenazi, which existed at the beginning of the state, has over the years been cured quietly where the people are now looked upon as Israelis, whether they're from Sephardi or Ashkenazi background. And now, because of the court's decision about this um, member of the government, who indeed is guilty of uh, various crimes, they're using it to restoke the fires of the fight between Ashkenazi and and Sephardi Israelis, which we thought had been calmed down over the years. It's a, and meanwhile, we are the country itself, Ashkenazim and Sephardim, whether we're all Israelis and we're surrounded by enemies who would like to destroy us. The last thing we need at this stage of life is internal dissension over the uh, Sephardi and Ashkenazi subject. And we are really, I believe, I don't, I don't want to be sound overly pessimistic, we are really now in a very critical period in the life of the state of Israel, where old problems which we thought had been resolved are now, are now being brought up again. And it's very important that the government handle this properly. Uh, I am preparing this program several days before it will be broadcast, and if anything of interest on this subject comes up in the next few days, I'll refer to it later in the program. Then uh, I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I've gathered some information about the Palestinian Authority, which I want to share with the listeners. Back in 1993, our government made an agreement with the uh, Palestinian terrorists that brought them back into our homeland, 
and gave them essentially sovereignty in the area of Gaza and also in the center of our country, in the area that's known as the West Bank, and they set up a state. And they called it the Palestinian Authority, or Palestine, or the Palestinian thing, whatever you will. Now, there's a good possibility, a strong possibility, that the PA, the Palestinian state, may become what's called a failed state, which is a phenomenon characteristic of other Arab states. You can count them. Look what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years with the Arab states, like Iraq, like Lebanon, like Libya, Libya and like Yemen, a violent succession could follow a civil war when Abbas dies. Abbas is the president of the so-called PA, and he, the last time he was elected was, I think, in uh, 2005. The elections were supposed to be held every four years. They have not had an election since then because he was afraid that his group would lose. It's obviously not a democratic state. It's a it's a dictatorship, and the chances are, and he's an old man, he's in his late eighties, and uh, he'll die. Everybody dies, and he's going to die. And uh, what's going to happen afterwards? The premise of the two-state solution was that given the opportunity, the Palestinians would be able to establish the state and prevent terrorism against Israel. In other words, it would be another Arab state next to Israel, like Egypt and Jordan. At that time, the prime minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, he said that he hoped that the Arabs would establish a state without the Supreme Court to govern effectively, while Israelis were led to believe that the Palestinians could establish a Palestinian entity that would have good neighborhood neighborly relations with Israel. None of this worked out. Now, we have a new government here in Israel. One of the challenges of this new government is the upcoming potential for the collapse of the Palestinian Authority, bringing about a deterioration in the security situation. The present head as I, of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, is unable to rule effectively. There is no law and order in the territories under his control. In the beginning, he was supposed to be uh, the Arab, the Palestinians were supposed to control Gaza and uh, that area in the central part of uh, Israel. But Gaza was lost to Hamas in a violent overthrow back in 2007. And now we see what we can call the Lebanization of the Palestinian Authority taking place in the West Bank. There's a number of armed groups 
some displaying only limited loyalty to the Palestinian Authority, and others, especially the Islamists, are trying to undermine the current regime. In addition, the deteriorating economic situation resulting from years of declining international aid, unsustainable public patronage, and very, very questionable fiscal policies have pushed the Palestinian Authority government and also their banking sector to the brink of failure, of insolvency. So this further erodes the authority of the Palestinian Authority and its legitimacy. The Palestinian Authority increasingly fails to provide basic governance which leading to a widespread Palestinian perception of the ruling elite as corrupt and authoritarian, which they are. We may well see the breakdown of the Palestinian Authority into various sectors, effectively ruled by new local leaders who maintain a monopoly over arms in their little fiefdoms. In other words, the Palestinian Authority can break up into a bunch of little groups headed by various different uh, terrorist organizations. Yasser Arafat and his successor Abbas were unwilling to confront the armed opposition groups, of which there were a number, including one known as Hamas and the other known as Islamic Jihad. They continue to engage in terror against Israel. Now, the Palestinian Authority uh, refrained from engaging in a civil war to, to, to secure the monopoly over the use of force. Now, any modern one of the definitions of a state is that it controls the, the use of force. And if you have a bunch of different gangs in the country, each one having its own armed force, you cannot have what we define as a nation. So there, we now have two uh, Palestinian entities, one in Gaza and the other in the West Bank. And it looks like that when Abbas dies, we're going to have even further breakup. Now, the Palestinian Authority, moreover, does not show any inclination to compromise on its goals and live peacefully next to Israel. There is no sign whatsoever that they want to live, live peacefully next to Israel. As a matter of fact, much of the money that goes to the Palestinian Authority, aside being stolen by the leadership, is also given to the families of terrorists to reward them for killing Israelis. The uh, By the way, one of the things they also uh, claim is they want to divide Jerusalem, and Jerusalem should be divided and part of become the capital of the Palestinian state. And they also want the refugees who were kicked out of Israel or who left, they want, insist that they should come back into Israel, and they also insist that Israel re returned to the 1967 borders before the Six-Day War. Now, the education system in the Palestinian Authority and the media in the Palestinian Authority 
continue propagating tremendous hostility toward Jews and toward Israel, and they blame Israel for all their problems. Security cooperation with Israel primarily concerns apprehending armed activists from the Islamic opposition, because the Palestinian Authority often turns a blind eye to terrorist activities against Israel, and indeed rewards terrorist activity against Israel. So the desire to prevent this this failed state to break up is obvious. We don't want to have a bunch of private little armies in the Palestinian area. See, uh, so what, what our government is apparently trying to do is uh, strengthen the Palestinian Authority so that it doesn't fall apart. Nevertheless, Israel should remember its limited capability for political engineering beyond its own borders. We can't really decide what's going to happen within the Palestinian Authority. The, the, uh, it's very questionable whether the Palestinians can change and behave reasonably or that a vigorous Palestinian authority benefits Israel. We don't know. In short, Abbas and his gang are part of the problem and not part of the solution. So Israel has to be extremely careful about promoting efforts to preserve the rule of the Palestinian Authority and prevent a descent into chaos. And the uh, it really is a very serious problem. Chaos is not a pleasant thought. Chaos in the territories poses a security, real big security problem for Israel, but is less acute if the Palestinian militias vying for influence compete with each other. In other words, there's a good possibility when Abbas leaves the scene that these various Palestinian groups will spend their time not attacking Israel, but rather attacking each other. The A succession struggle following the death of Abbas could divert attention from fighting Israel and also, unfortunately, also prevent coordination in this low-intensity conflict against Israel. Also, anarchy in these territories may legitimize a freer hand for Israel in dealing with the terrorists. In other words, right now there is a Palestinian Authority supposedly ruling, which it doesn't. But if the that area under the Palestinian Authority falls into a bunch of little groups fighting it, uh, fighting against each other, Israel would obviously have to step in, and which is very also a, a not uh, it's it's not really a solution to the problem. But we don't want to have these these uh, various uh, guerrilla forces fighting each other and then attacking us also. Now there is some possibility, according to some experts, that chaos might ultimately yield really positive results. The collapse of the Palestinian Authority will weaken the Palestinian national movement, which up to now has been a source of violence 
and is a recipe for regional instability in the future. The Palestinian Authority has supported the policies of radical regimes like Iran. It's also anti-American, and it threatens at least two states, Israel and Jordan. Israel is not the only nation, not the only state threatened by the Palestinian Authority. Jordan is also threatened. So the collapse of the Palestinian Authority and the failure of the Palestinian national movement to establish a real state may reduce the appetite of the Palestinians for an independent entity. In other words, the people, the Palestinians, the Arabs living in the Palestinian state, or what they call the Palestinian state, or under the Palestinian Authority, they know how bad it is. The, the, the Palestinian men in the street, the, um, they know that they don't provide work. There, there are tens of thousands of Palestinians who come into Israel every day to work for the simple reason that the Palestinian Authority does not provide work for its own people. So it could well be that the average man in the street, or the man in the village, if you will, in an Arab village, he just wants to support his family. He really doesn't care what the government is or who the government is. And he'd probably be just as happy to live under Israel as long as he can eat three meals a day. So the uh, the it's interesting. So the disintegration of the Palestinian Authority and its breakup would be a public relations debacle for the Palestinians and reduce their appeal among native Europeans and Israel bashers worldwide. In other words, there are people today who keep saying Israel should allow the Palestinians to make a state. But what happened is if it felt if it falls apart now, then you, it's going to be hard for them to spread propaganda and say that they should make a state if they, if they show that they can't. So uh, this dysfunctional character will become apparent to everybody that there is no Palestinian nationalism. This dysfunctional character will become apparent to everybody and there'll be a, a better understanding of why Israel fears the, uh, the idea of a Palestinian state. So it could well be, according to some thinkers like uh, Ephraim Imbar, who's the president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, he says the, uh, that the disorder in the, in the territories under the Palestinian Authority could be the incentive for fresh thinking on the Palestinian issue on the part, not only the Palestinians, on the part of everybody else. More chaos in the Palestinian ruled territories might open up new opportunities to stabilize the situation. The idea and the disappointment of the Palestinian Authority falling apart could bring a more realistic leadership to the forefront. In other words, if the Palestinian Authority falls apart, you could have one of two scenarios. 
even though four apart into a bunch of little groups fighting each other, or one group could take over and more or less stabilize the area. So the uh, it could be that more realistic leadership would arise within the Palestinian population. Uh, that's a possibility, which I don't think is very, very strong possibility. The, the, the violence of the Intifada led to the acceptance of the 1991 Madrid Conference formula, an indication of growing political realism among the Palestinians. The failed, a failed Palestinian Authority experiment could be an additional factor to more politically mature body politic if there are Leader, if there is leadership in the Palestinian area who look back on what's happened, how they have failed, and maybe some mature leadership will arise. I don't know whether this is a high probability, but it could indeed happen. For example, the Palestinians in Gaza, for example, may ask the Egyptians to return. So, so could, when Egypt once ruled Gaza, and they ruled it with an iron hand, it could well be that the average Arab living in Gaza wants order. He wants to know when he gets up in the morning, he will have work and his family will be safe. And it could well be, he thinks that it could be under the Egyptians. In the West Bank, on the other hand, they could wish... Uh, to bring back the Hashemites of Jordan, that is a much more favorable option compared compare with the failed Palestinian Authority. Because the uh, there, there are a lot of Palestinians, for example, who ran away from Israel to uh, Jordan back in 1948, and they lived there. I don't know. How, I don't know if you can define them as good citizens, but the Hashemite uh, kingdom rules with an iron hand, and it could well be that indeed if the West Bank area run by the Palestinian Authority again would be under the Hashemites, it would be much, much less of a threat to Israel. So the uh, that's a thought. So despite its growing popularity, it's misleading to portray Hamas as the only alternative to the Palestinian Authority leadership. The, uh, for example, the rule of Hamas in Gaza has been an experiment that failed, and the allure of Islamic radicalism is fading, because the average Palestinian in the street, I believe, wants to make a living for himself and his family. And under the Palestinian Authority, this has not come about. The chaos as a temporary situation is not necessarily the worst-case scenario. So according to this expert like Ephraim Inbar, who's done a lot of thinking about this, he, he says, and I quote, Israel should not shudder at the prospect of the Palestinian Authority failing because it could well be that uh, the Hashemites could take over in the area called the West Bank, the Egyptians could take over in the area known as Gaza, 
and maybe we'll have some peace because neither the Egyptians nor the Jordanians are looking for trouble with Israel. So these are just some thoughts about the, let's put it this way, there's no doubt that the Palestinian Authority is going to fall apart. The question is, what comes next? But it could well be that bringing Egypt back to Gaza and Jordan back to the West Bank might be a reasonable and safe solution for Israel. I'll be back after the break. You've come to the best station for hot news and sizzling commentary. אתם מקשיבים ל-Israel News Talk Radio. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work. And get the latest news and commentary from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The first item that I wish to discuss in this portion of the program is something which I admit I had little knowledge of until I started reading about it recently. I'm certainly not an expert on this subject, but it's something I think is important. I'm referring to poverty in Israel. A gap is widening between the haves and the have-nots in Israel. Israel's apparently, according to the statistics, are consistently getting poorer. Although the economy grew in 2021, the gap between the rich and poor also grew wider and more people entered the cycle of poverty that is a cycle that is a real struggle to break. I just became aware of this myself with some of the things I've been reading in the paper. According to the National Insurance Institute 2021 report on poverty and social gaps in the country, almost 2 million Israelis, 2 million Israelis, live in poverty, which is a little more than 20% of the population. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development points to Israel as one of the countries with the highest economic disparity, with the rate of working poor in Israel very high. There's something called the GINI Index. I guess it's pronounced Gini. It measures income inequality, and it also puts Israel in a very undesirable location compared to other developed welfare states. Israel is a developed state, but it also has is also considered, to a large extent, a welfare state. A lot of people in Israel are on welfare. So poverty in Israel can be attributed to a lot of factors. First of all, ultra-Orthodox Jews, a lot of whom don't work, uh, the Arab minority, and not only do they not work or not find enough jobs, but they also tend to have the largest families, the ultra-Orthodox Jews and the Arab minority. So they often earn lower incomes and have less access to education. High-paying jobs in Israel are concentrated in central Israel and the Tel Aviv area, where it is more expensive to live. 
public transportation still needs to be significantly improved, and until then, access to job centers is limited for people who do not own private cars. Salaries in the public sector, one of the largest in the country, tend to be low, have not been updated in years. The Central Bureau of Statistics data show that many households cannot meet the demands of basic monthly payments for utilities, food, and education. A staggering number of Israelis skip medical treatments and forego medication to pay for other basic needs. The government has promised to lower the cost of living, but the gaps existed long before the global inflation crisis began, and the cost of living in the country has been one of the highest in the world for uh, here in Israel for years. The global pandemic made rich Israelis richer. Government aid to the poor throughout this crisis, the COVID crisis, helped them from further sinking into poverty. The National Insurance Institute has recommended continuing the increase in financial aid for those in need. So with inflation on the rise, more and more Israelis are able to do less with their money, and it's pushing more people into poverty. I quite honestly have to admit this really came as a surprise to me, but it is a reality. In order to deal with inequality, the state needs to intervene either by increasing taxation or raising government allowances. At this point, it doesn't seem that either of these things is on the horizon. Poverty is a direct result of government policy, according to the experts. That's what they wrote in the Poverty Report for 2022. Because there is a thriving economy, and therefore they are calling on the government to seize this unique moment to finally make massive investments in social expenditure and stop sufficing with partial solutions and low budgets. The latest government plan to tackle the rising cost of living was revealed last week and consists of measures that will have only a very small impact on people's pockets. So according to this report about poverty, and I quote, we need to deeply change Israeli society and make it not just an economic, technological, and military powerhouse, but also has to be a superpower of social justice. One way to deal with poverty is by creating a list of products at minimum cost. And there are there is a minimal cost on a lot of products, but the list has to be longer. The uh, current list of price control products is short and does not include fruits and vegetables. The the, it's interesting, by in striking contrast to the poverty, about 20% of the people, tremendous wealth in Israel is concentrated in just a few hundred people. According to Forbes magazine, 77% of the richest 500 people in the country are billionaires. 
This number jumped in the last decade when there were fewer than half. In the last 20 years, the wealth of these 500 grew by a factor of 10. The labor market is very polarized. The lower wages are low, but there's a limit to how much the state can fix through allowances. These gaps need to be closed. If Israel strives for equality, the higher income earners need to pay more tax in order to fund programs, but to, in order to distribute income more fairly. Now, <clears throat> many people have made money in recent years from the booming tech sector, which has not contributed to a more even distribution of wealth. Poor people in Israel have less access to education, especially higher education, and they are less likely to live in places with higher than minimum wage jobs. But also, rich Israelis own a massive amount of real estate, while most Israelis are either struggling to make their mortgage payments or cannot afford to buy their first homes. Like many poor people, they live in government housing projects, which they pay a symbolic amount. Poverty in Israel is larger than in any welfare state, according to the experts. It needs to be dealt with immediately through a combination of generous allowances and programs that bring more people into the workforce. Work so we have to be, uh, we have to say that Israel is far from where it should be, but apparently there is progress. Programs are still on a small scale. There have to be more programs <coughs> to, uh, to help people who are poor. It's a very complex problem. <coughs> and I, quite honestly, well, I myself was unaware of it until I saw these several uh, reports in the newspaper and the fact to say that 20% of the population lives in poverty, that came as a shock to me. Obviously, the government has to do something about it. Israel has a thriving economy. Apparently, it's not getting to all the people. Now, along the same lines, there's another subject you don't hear much about. When you do hear about it, it's on the back pages of the newspaper. It's hardly ever mentioned on radio and television. And what I'm referring to is Holocaust survivors. As of 2023, now, there are 165,000. 165,000 Holocaust survivors living in Israel. And one in three of these survivors lives under the poverty line despite government assistance. This is a tragic reminder of the ongoing impact of government failure and the need for support. This is a true during a period of high inflation in light of Israel's rising cost of living. People have to select between paying for food or medical expenses. These situations highlight the crucial need for advocacy for increased financial assistance 
particularly for Holocaust survivors in Israel, to sure that they can live with dignity and security in their remaining years. Today, the needs of Holocaust survivors are changing. Their resources are complex and multifaceted and require a comprehensive approach. Non-government organizations, NGOs, play a vital role in addressing these needs as they are often better equipped to respond to the unique and ever-changing needs of Holocaust survivors. However, ultimately, it is the government's responsibility to ensure that the resources are available to meet the needs of Holocaust survivors since it is toilsome at their age to afford services and programs independently. Holocaust survivors today, as I said, there are 165,000. They are old people today. The, 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 according to uh, one uh, NGO, this should include no mobility aids installed in apartments and nursing care and other essential services. Israel has a responsibility to support the Holocaust survivors. As survivors are now at an age where advocating for themselves is not enough, public awareness and advocacy are critical for ensuring that the government provides sufficient financial assistance for survivors. While globally, People learn about the Holocaust and the crimes against humanity committed against the Jewish people, but we generally do not think about the daily struggles faced by survivors who are still alive. We should have a token of appreciation for their contributions to the continued existence of the Jewish people and the Jewish state and they have a role as witnesses to the Holocaust and also a demonstration of our commitment to helping marginalized communities and addressing injustices in our own society. When we don't learn how to help people in our own communities, how can we offer a hand to other civilizations that face injustices? When we learn about the Holocaust and its atrocities, we must remember that there are still survivors today. These individuals are not just historical figures. They are alive today, and many of them are our neighbors. We have to show compassion toward them by providing help and a higher quality of life. As a community here in Israel, we have to ensure that Holocaust survivors are not forgotten and that their needs are met. So the the problem of of the poverty in Israel, and the fact that we not I'm not just talking about Holocaust survivors, but the very fact that 20 percent of the people in Israel are living under the poverty, what's considered the poverty line, came really as a shock to me when I read these various reports in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm not a uh, social worker, and I can't come up with uh, or suggested solutions, but the existence of the problem is something that I was not aware of, and I wanted by use of my program to make the listeners aware. There are, there is poverty in Israel, 
And the, much of the poverty is in older people. They're not going to go out and look for work now. And a lot of poverty is among Holocaust survivors. And therefore, it is, it is the responsibility of the state to meet their needs, their basic needs. Now, this brings me to a, a topic which is related, really. And uh, that topic is the law of return. Uh, there's a grandfather clause, clause in Israel's law of return where um, if a, uh, like somebody coming from the Soviet Union, a former Soviet Union, uh, who's uh, Jewish and maybe one of his parents is not Jewish or one of his grandparents, they have several generations who are entitled to come to Israel under the law of return. So no one's going to cancel the law of return, which is fundamental to the state of Israel. Israel will always be a safe haven for every Jew ever on earth. But the, the reports of the, the reforms have come up about uh, changing the law of return and many American Jews, the leadership of the American Jewish community is, is very upset by this. And it's up to the Israeli government to, li to, to uh, listen to what the American Jews are saying. The, uh, it, the law of return has brought many, many people to Israel who are not Jewish, not Jewish at all. And uh, the, the law has to be changed, but it has to be changed in a proper way. They're not going to cancel the grandchild clause What's likely to happen is going to be a committee to determine how we can deal with this challenge. And uh, when you go into details, that's a challenge. We need Israel to be a strong Jewish state. We need to tackle this challenge of bringing all these non-Jews here under the grandfather clause. And it's really a, a subject that has to be dealt with. The... Uh, Recent data shows that in the 1990s, when there was mass aliyah from the former Soviet Union, 93% of the immigrants to Israel were Jewish, but only 28% of these from these countries were Jewish in 2020. Another 30 years ago, the overwhelming majority of immigrants were Jewish. Now, less than 30% are Jewish. So the... Uh, this, this is a, a real problem. The, the, so they have to revise the law somewhat. The, uh, it's interesting. In, in 40,000 non-Jews, the vast majority of them from Russia and Ukraine, immigrated under this clause in the past year alone. In other words, there are non-Jews coming to Israel under the grandfather clause because their grandfather was Jewish. Under the grandchild clause, anyone with one Jewish parent is eligible for automatic Israeli citizenship, and also the civic and financial benefits that come with it, including their spouse and children, their children's spouse, even if none are Jewish according to halacha or even interested in becoming Jews. In fact, the grandchild clause is now close to being a great-grandparent clause. The law has to be changed. A lot of these people come from the Soviet Union, get all these goodies from the government, and then leave the country. The, 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 the committee should be set up to consider how to make the necessary changes to the law of return sensibly and with sensitivity. 
the, uh, we have a diaspora affairs minister, and, we, and the ministry that is headed by the diaspora affairs minister should make an effort to tackle the question of assimilation in Jewish communities abroad also, not just bringing non-Jews to Israel. Most immigrants arriving in Israel, particularly from the United States and other free countries, do so because of their identification with the Jewish state. It's not an easy step to make to make to come on Aliyah, and they deserve full support and encouragement. But we have a lot of people coming from areas like the Soviet Union who are simply taking advantage of the goodies and the benefits they can, they can get by coming to Israel if one of their grandparents was Jewish. This requires careful thought and planning, and it shouldn't be a simple overnight revamping of the law of return, which the law of return is an essential tenet of Israel's national existence. It's obviously got to be changed because, again, a very large percentage of people, particularly from the former Soviet Union, are simply not Jewish and not interested in becoming Jewish. This is a real problem. So I close this portion of the program, and I realize that in the last several minutes I've discussed poverty in Israel and I've discussed the law of return and uh, I, it, it seems I'm closing the program on a rather unhappy note but I'm trying as much as possible to make the facts and these issues clear to the listeners so hopefully we'll have good news next week again thanks for listening Jay Shapiro signing off Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.